Will Wright is a famous, successful computer game designer. Uh, he created SimCity, which sort of mapped bird's-eye urban planning into millions of minds. Uh, working on a dollhouse for boys, he created The Sims, which allowed all of us to manipulate suburban households. So these two series together have accounted for billions of dollars in computer game revenue, placing Will Wright at the highest echelons of commercial entertainment. So what does a guy like Will Wright do for a hobby? Well, amongst other things, he runs the Stupid Fun Club in the East Bay of California. I visited there a few years ago. They were playing a video. In this video was a robot. The robot was laying on its side in a public street, and it was, it was kind of calling out, help me, help me, I've fallen over, won't you help me? And the video was taping the responses of people to like a, basically a homeless, helpless robot. And it was, it was kind of upsetting and pretty amusing. So I was standing there with an amused sort of grin on my face, and someone came up to me and handed me a plastic visor and a, and a plastic bodysuit. And I, I put both of these things on in the spirit of the evening. And uh, along comes this robot, which wheels up to me, and immediately begins firing rapid-fire projectile ping-pong balls at my face and, and body. And, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking around and I see in the back of the room there's Will Wright behind the controls sort of steering and watching and, and I think wondering how long will this guy stand there. So, I mean, this idea of, of, of experimenting, of testing with things, he's, he's made it possible for all of us to experiment with the systems that surround us. Anyone who's built a house in The Sims and taken away all the doors and toilets knows exactly what I'm talking about. So now Will Wright is building a simulation of the universe. Wow. Will Wright. Please Thank you. Cheers. Hi, everybody. So all those pictures you just saw from the Hubble, which is like one of my favorite robots of all times, and I just thought I would inflict those upon you. Uh, and also, I broke my arm skiing just because everybody keeps asking me several weeks ago. And let's see what else. Oh, yeah, I had a, way too much coffee today. So uh, I'm going to be going kind of fast. Now, they asked me to come speak here, and I figured South by Southwest, you know, okay, it's kind of a film festival thing, turning it into an interactive festival. And so I decided I would come here and talk about story. And I started preparing this talk about story and how it relates to interactive storytelling. And then I started reading the description like a week ago of what I was supposed to be talking about. And it was all, oh, he's going to be demonstrating Spore and all this other stuff, which I wasn't intending to do. So I decided to kind of mash the two together. So we're going to do a little bit of both. I'm going to talk a little bit about storytelling to begin with, and then a little bit about Spore, and then kind of conclude. Uh, by the way, I love the idea. We can go to the PowerPoint now. I love the idea of naming a conference after its location, its coordinate system. Although I think, to be more accurate, they should kind of specify the space-time coordinates. <laughs> Although it's maybe a little less memorable, but any rate, so a few thoughts on storytelling. First, I want to tell you why I hate stories that my computer tries to tell me. You know, This has always been like a holy grail in kind of computer entertainment, is how we make interactive stories, because stories kind of been the model. You know, Movies really are almost what we've been looking at as kind of our heritage. So I want to talk just a little bit really briefly first about the nature of story. First of all, before we get to story, 
the way I look at the world is as a simulation, that there are all these things happening, and there's a state of the world. And you know, a lot of these things cascade into the next state of the world. And this is kind of how a computer simulation works. And so we kind of turn the clock, and certain things are causing changes in other things. And it's a very dense kind of parallel web of uh, events. Now, a story really is following one causal chain and presenting that to the person, to the viewer. In some sense, the story is really all about the causal chain of events that are causing other ones that kind of lead to some interesting conclusion over a story arc. Now, the stories tend to be, you know, of course, unchanging, very linear. Everybody's going to go see the same version of Star Wars, whereas games inherently, you know, tend to be very open-ended. You know, in some sense, the game is more like a vehicle where the player can kind of explore all these different paths and directions. Uh, and also, a lot of media have kind of a primary thing that they hook into. So movies really are primarily a visual medium. Uh, games are, on the other hand, are primarily an interactive medium. And so whenever we take control away from the player at all, we are throwing away the most important thing about games. You know, it's equivalent to going to a movie theater and showing them a blank screen. You know, you're basically throwing away the thing that really kind of is the DNA of that medium. So we can kind of map these things out a little bit, you know, kind of interactive medium on one side, passive on the other. Certain different games have kind of different levels of interactivity. Uh, games inherently are kind of this branching tree. And if you look at like a chess program, the way it works, it's actually exploring all the possible states that a chess game can take. In some sense, we're actually trying to find the most compressed rule set that we can then generate the largest possibility space with in a game, which is really just the opposite process of science. Science is really looking at all this data in the world and how do you find the simplest, most compressed rules to re-describe all that data. So we have a linear sequence that's kind of the basis of story, and that's what I'm going to zero in on right now. Uh, there's a topology difference here between games you know, and story. And part of that is really because of the point of view. You have a very controlled point of view when you're watching a story. And because of that, you can present a very dramatic arc, a very engineered dramatic arc, where everybody's going to go through the same kind of events, feelings, etc., emotions, over the arc of the movie. A game, on the other hand, it looks a little bit more like this. You know, you kind of go up here, you lose. You go back to the beginning. You go back up, lose again. Go back to the beginning. And so this dramatic arc thing in a game really uh, doesn't feel like a dramatic arc. You know, it feels like you're kind of redoing the same thing over and over. And so because of that, one of the things that we've always thought of is that movies are far more compelling. Linear drama is more compelling than interactive drama, which we tend to think of as very flat, and it basically is. Now, stories really are based on a lot of properties. You know, I think language is one of them, imagination. But probably the most important one for me is empathy. You know, the ability for us to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of somebody else that's up on the screen. You know, movies have these wonderful things called actors that are basically emotional stand-ins, emotional avatars. And I can look at an actor on screen, and we have this circuit in our brain where I can kind of inhabit that person and feel what they're feeling so effectively. You know, in some sense, film is really, you know, dealing with this rich emotional palette because of the fact that they have actors. And we tend to think of films as being much richer than games, you know. Games tend to be appealing more to the reptilian brain. You know, the kind of basic instincts of, you know, fear, aggression. But on the other hand, I think that there are a lot of things that games do. They have a different emotional palette than linear entertainment. It's not that they don't have an emotional palette, but there are things I've felt in games that I've never once felt really in a movie. Things like pride of accomplishment. Uh, guilt is something I've done. I played black and white once, and I just decided to beat the hell out of my creatures to see what would happen. And it, I had this, you know, crying, beat-up creature, and I actually felt really bad about it, even though I knew it was a simulation. And I've never felt guilty watching a film. And so really the appeal, I think, you know, the circuit in our brain that kind of makes stories appealing to us and entertaining is empathy. The fact that we can empathize and put ourselves into these stories. Whereas games, it's more agency. It's the fact that I'm causing what's going on on the screen. So in a movie, I'm really kind of asking, you know, what's going to happen next in this causal chain? In a game, it's more, can I do this? Can I accomplish what I want to do? 
So uh, in some sense, these are both kind of in your imagination building these elaborate models. So we basically have empathy building models from the storytelling side, and we have agency building models from the interactive side. And really, these models are a cognitive technology. I think they are like the original educational technology that we evolved uh, to kind of understand the world around us. And they involve abstracting the world, you know, finding the kind of underlying things. And I think both of these are really a response to being stuck in time. Okay, well, you know, basically we are always stuck in this time stream. And yet, we want to be able to move experiences outside, either through space or through time. You know, if I'm a caveman and I go out of my cave and I'm almost eaten by a tiger, and I can go back and tell a story to my friend, the other caveman, that, oh, there's this tiger outside, be careful when you go out. I've basically taken the experience that I had, transferred it through time and space to this other person. And so he's learned from that. He's learned from my experience. And so we've displaced it. And, you know, I think that this is a lot of why we evolved these technologies. So to kind of wrap that up a little bit, we have experiences that we have, you know, either through play or through story, where we start building abstractions of the world and world models from that. Really are compressed versions of the world, kind of abstractions. And we use that to predict the future and change our behavior. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke once said the best way to prevent the future is to predict it. And in fact, a lot of the role of story has been kind of building these potential futures, these you know, regions of possibility space, and trying to flesh them out and say, ooh, look how good this is, or look at how bad that is. And they now become landmarks for kind of how we deal with the world and where we want to push the system in different directions. So going a little bit more into the story structure, you know, a lot of stories start out and you kind of get all these different characters introduced at the beginning. And at that point in time, the structure of what's going to happen is very fuzzy in your mind as a viewer. You know, as you think further and further into the future, a much wider set of possibilities can kind of unfold as you watch it. So at Star Wars at the beginning, you meet these characters, but you don't know what's going to happen really until you start watching the movie. You know, from the initial thing, you might think that it's going to be about a turf war that Luke has with a fellow farmer, you know, on Tantooine. Or it might be Leia pursuing her, you know, hidden dream to be an exotic dancer. Or Darth Vader to become an industrial designer. But, uh... But all these things are possibilities that exist, you know, inherent in the characters at the beginning before the movie goes, okay? Now, once Star Wars starts, actually, you know, we actually see these sequences unfolding, and every time something happens, it's actually kind of narrowing the range of the future possibilities. And this is generally kind of the way the causal link works in storytelling. A lot of times, we're filling in the adjacent possibility space as we watch this. So like in this scene from Indiana Jones, when he's running out of the temple and all these traps are going off, you know, in your head, you're kind of filling in all the possibilities. Oh, what if he had tripped there? Or what if he had fallen down that hole? Or what if the rocket rolled over him? So in fact, you're imagining all these little branches of possibilities that don't actually happen in the film, but that's what makes it interesting, is you understanding that he took this very kind of precarious path through this possibility space. Uh, other things like Star Wars, just, you know, kind of the grit and the realism and the backstory and, you know, the fact that the spaceships were dirty, you know, in a softer way is filling in this possibility space and making this whole world seem very real to you as you watch it. But really, toward the end of my stories, what you really want to do is start amplifying. You know, having very small events lead to very large outcomes. And this is what I call dramatic amplification. So at the end of Star Wars, you know, basically it all comes down to these two major possibilities that are going to happen. Either, you know, the rebels are going to be crushed when the Death Star fires on their base, or the Death Star is going to blow up. And it all comes down to whether these two little photon torpedoes go down this little hole. So these very minor events are going to push the entire world state in kind of very, you know, wide-ranging areas. Now, one of the fundamental things that I found that is probably the biggest uh, obstacle we face as interactive storytellers is the fact that in linear storytelling, the director knows the future. And by knowing the future, the director kind of understands which seemingly kind of minor details or events are important to the outcome and then presents those to you. And we don't know that in interactive storytelling. 
In simulations, there's this kind of idea of chaotic systems, which is that you can take a system, like let's say we took a bowl, put it upside down, and dropped a ball on top of it. If we move that ball just a little bit to the one side, it might end up in a very different space. And this is kind of basically chaos, which is that very minor kind of initial conditions can lead to very wide-ranging kind of end conditions. And the same thing really is pressed to the extreme in storytelling, I think. So where, you know, it might just be that, you know, because this glass of water fell over, our hero ducked in time to miss the assassin's bullet and then went on to save the world from certain destruction. And so only if you knew what was going to happen could you present that the way that a linear story presents it, which is kind of one of the things that we're really struggling with in interactive drama. And so in linear drama, you can show the causal chain exactly that's relevant to the outcome. Now, a lot of linear storytellers have started playing with this causal chain in interesting ways. Uh, well, a very typical thing that's very common in almost any film now is that you actually start developing a lot of different kind of subplots that over time, you know, start merging together. And one of the things that kind of keeps your interest is you're kind of wanting to see, okay, how are these two backstories going to tie together? And this is something that really came from literature. It's done very much in books. We have these multi-threaded stories that slowly resolve into one main storyline. Certain movies kind of do this more densely than others. But this is a very common thing that people do with causal chains. Uh, there was kind of an extreme version of this a movie called Time Code, where in fact they ran all these in parallel. They had four separate sections of the screen that were all running the whole time. So in fact, uh, rather than sequentially jumping back and forth between these, and sometimes they would merge, split apart, etc., but it was a parallel running of this kind of multi-threaded storytelling. Uh, one of my favorite types of stories is one where it's kind of going along, and then you kind of have a sense of where it's going, where it's going, and then all of a sudden it just takes a total left turn on you. You know, and uh, The Matrix is probably a really extreme example of that, you know, where you think it's a story about this hacker, da 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 da, and then he takes the red pill, and all of a sudden, holy shit, you know, where's this movie going? Um, now, there are kind of softer versions of this. You know, when I saw Fight Club in the trailers and I went to go see the movie, you know, at some point I realized this is not the movie I was expecting to see. You know, it, this is a really interesting kind of film about materialism, you know, which looked like it was going to be this action beat up guys movie. Uh, and so you can kind of do this in different ways where you're defining the expectation, not only within the story chain, but also kind of with the entire movie experience, the way it's packaged. Uh, Memento is one of the really interesting attempts at kind of playing with the causal chain here, because as the events unfolded in Memento, at some point, each future point in the chain caused you to reevaluate what you'd seen before. And so you actually had to go back and rebuild the past linkages. And as the story went deeper and deeper, you were having to reconstruct very large regions of this causal chain in your head. And so in some sense, it was kind of like a puzzle game as you were reconstructing what really happened as you watched it. Uh, one of my all-time favorite game, uh, movies is Groundhog Day, uh, this brilliant film. And Groundhog Day was really interesting because it felt the most like a game to me, you know, because basically we had this linear sequence the guy was going through, but then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it's six o'clock in the morning again, and you see him do it again, and then it happens again, and again. And so what was really interesting about Groundhog Day <laughs> was that, yeah, I mean, basically, it was a game, you know, you want to restart. Now... I talked about how important it is for the director to kind of know where the future is going because it can show the relevant causal chain. Uh, Groundhog Day was a really interesting example of the director not only knew the future, but knew the past. He knew what you had already seen in the movie, and so every succeeding day he was able to skip over more and more, and you kind of just filled in those blanks saying, okay, well, the same stuff happened there, but this was the difference in that day. And so he was actually able to, you know, in your imagination, cover almost an eternity of experience that Bill Murray had in this movie, you know, in a very succinct kind of economical way. 
And that's something that we really should be doing in games. In fact, as games, we do know what the player's gone through, that they've failed on the same miserable level three times in a row. Why don't we just let the player skip the level? You know? And this kind of gets back to the dramatic arc being repeated over and over and over. You know, I think in games, this is something where we could kind of look at what the player's doing and not force them to experience the same frustrating things over and over. Uh, this is not the way the real world works, actually, it turns out. But... Uh, it's what makes games really interesting, is the fact that we're exploring this giant possibility space as we play them. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about game stories and attempts at kind of bringing stories into games, uh, and also player stories, which to me are far more interesting, really down the road. You know, the initial things with games were like some of the early adventure games, where it was a branching story. And you might be familiar with these old books, the Choose Your Own Adventure books, where you, you know, pick the page, 57 if you do this. And, I mean, it's like everybody's seen these books, it's surprising how popular they were. Uh, but that's basically kind of what this branching model was. And the very early games were basically attacking it with a branching tree. Of course, it gets very expensive as you get deeper and deeper in the story and you have to develop, you know, a million branches. Uh, what's much more common is what I kind of call a gating story, which you have kind of an open-ended thing. And something like, you know, even like Quake is almost an example of this, where you have gates. Within a level, you can kind of run around, do whatever you want, pick up guns, shoot at whatever you like. But really, you have to find the red key before you get to the next level. And then it's kind of open-ended to some degree. And this has been a much more common modeling games kind of over the recent history. Uh, there's kind of different topologies for the gated story. And something like the Zelda games really have a topology, something more like this, where you have little sub-goals between the gates. And so there are little gates between the large gates. And Wind Waker is a good example of that. And there have also been hybrids between the gated and branching story. But really, all of these things are throwing data at the problem. You know, we have to develop you know, a huge game world. The players only explore a very small percentage of these trees as they play the game. And you know, to double the player's experience, we have to do about four times more work. So really, that's kind of been the downfall of these very uh, tightly topographical branching story approaches. There's kind of more interesting approaches that are being experimented with now. Uh, facade is kind of an experimental thing that basically takes this idea of little story fragments. And this is kind of a simplification, but the idea is that you have little fragments of story that have a trigger condition and a result condition. And certain triggers can match certain results. So basically, when you grab these things, you can start putting them together like little Legos and forming a story over time. And basically, you have a pool of these things with kind of a beginning state, and you look for a matching tag. You know, In this case, the colors are matching. And basically, you can either look at what the player is doing or kind of randomly pull these tags out of the pool and then they chain together and they kind of make some causal sense. And this is something that I think has got more potential than has currently been explored because it's really a form of procedural storytelling at some point. It's not really clear at what level we want to deconstruct the story to, though. You know, whether it's the boy meets girl level or something much lower, maybe the beat level. Uh, one of my favorite short stories of all time was a story by Bruce Sterling, who I guess is talking here later today. Uh, called Mannequin Nako. And he describes this really interesting computer that people wear on their hip. And this guy's at work one day and he's walking along and the computer says, oh, if you've got a few minutes, why don't you stop and buy some milk at this convenience store? And it's only like a minute out of his way, so he stops and buys the milk. And then as he's you know, approaching his apartment, you know, it says, oh, go one block over here, go to this address and deliver the milk to this lady. And he opens the door at this kind of apartment he's never been to. And there's some woman there with screaming children and she's totally frazzled. And him bringing her milk just totally saves her day. It was a very minor effort on his part to just kind of go buy the milk and drop it off on his way home. But for her, it was a lifesaver. And it's almost like a little uh, kind of a karma computer that keeps track of what is the easiest way to help this person's life and who can do that at the least expense. And the more somebody actually kind of obeys this karmic computer, the more it gets other people to help them. And it was a really interesting way, you know, in my mind, of how you might take a multiplayer game 
and have the different players supporting the storytelling for each other. You know? And this is something that I've heard a few people kind of talk about experimenting with, but I haven't really seen any firm results on yet. Now, the generation that we're dealing with now is kind of really used to the idea that media is a malleable thing. You know, that they make their own CDs, their own videos, they put them on YouTube, they have their own MySpace profile. You know, to them, media is something that they kind of directly mold. Now, when I kind of grew up and I got my first computer, you know, computers were really thought of more as a very, very fancy calculator. It was this number cruncher and you could do simulations and all this amazing work with it. You know, but nowadays, you know, it's really considered more of a communications device. You know, if you ask the average person, what they really rely on is things like email and chat and stuff like that and reading the news. Uh, so I think looking at technology, you know, as player-centered rather than broadcaster-centered. You know, in media, we kind of have this idea that we're, you know, the media producers and we're going to make cool stuff like games or movies and push it out to the masses. That's totally flipping around now. Now the masses are getting empowered to create their own cool stuff and then share, you know, amongst each other. Watching players play stories, I mean, play games, for me, is really interesting because they invariably come up with stories that they used to describe what they did in the game to other players. Uh, very rarely do I hear somebody describe the cool cutscene they saw in this game to a friend. But all the time, they're describing this really cool, weird thing that they did, unique. You know, it's very kind of unique to them that they did in the game. And I've kind of uh, very roughly categorized these as unintentional, subversive, and expressive. Uh, the first ones are pretty simple. Unintentional stories are players come across some weird bug or some strange thing, and they make up some weird backstory for it. You know, in The Sims, we had a lot of bugs in the very first version, where you know, some of the people would you know, burst into flames spontaneously. And... <laughs> They said, oh, cool, spontaneous human combustion. And it happened because of this, that, and the other. And they made this whole backstory about why the bug occurred, you know. And then they would go post it on the internet. Uh, the expressive stories are more, I mean, subversive stories are more where players are really trying to push the boundaries of the game. They're trying to, you know, push out the envelope in totally different directions. And they'll find cheats and weird things. And they get really excited when they find these kind of exploits that they can basically do in a game. You know, in Grand Theft Auto, there are all these cool exploits where you can call in a million tanks and then have them all blow up and fly into the air all at once. And people would film these things. In Battlefield 42, people do these amazing exploits multiplayer, and they coordinate their activities, and then they film it and show it to other players. And it's just really fun, I think, for them to kind of play with the boundaries of the system and then you know, kind of present the results of their experiments, really, to other players. Now, expressive stories are something more like we see in The Sims, where players, in fact, kind of have an intentional message. Uh, Grand Theft Auto, which I love, uh, I spent the whole game just kind of developing this character and walking around. I had my kind of homeboys I would hang out with, and I found a bicycle. And it turns out you can play, you know, do all these bike tricks on the bicycle. And I didn't really like the missions or all the shooting and all that stuff, but I basically kind of was a semi-homeless person living in this world, you know, surviving kind of day to day. And for me, you know, that character became very real, and I would go tell my friends what happened to Mo every day, you know, who's my guy. Uh, the Sims we saw, you know, as we showed it to people, they started playing it, and especially when they were sitting next to each other, like, you know, it might be a couple or friends or whatever, that they would be verbalizing the story as they played it. And that was really kind of their interpretation of this underlying simulation that, in fact, was simulating all these different factors, but they would reduce it to one causal linkage of, oh, she got upset because of this, and went and did that, and then this happened. And so even though they were dealing with a very parallel simulation, they would reduce it to a linear story. And so we put up a web page, of course, where people could put these stories up on the web, and we ended up with hundreds of thousands of stories. And for the players, it was kind of almost like performing a musical instrument. They got very good at not just playing the game, but also at creating stuff in the game. And then they would want to show it off to other people. And for them, it became kind of a, you know, a storytelling tool. 
Some of these stories were initially very short, but eventually they got you know, huge. This is like one page out of a 100-page story that was one of five parts. And so these are like small novels that people are writing. You know? And then there's the whole machinima movement, which I really don't have time to go into today, but you know, that's kind of taking it even further. Uh, some of the early stories we got were kind of emulations of like typical teen slasher you know, things. This is a teen slasher one that somebody made. Uh, other ones are kind of like these commentaries. This is a guy kind of complaining about his local Starbucks, and not Starbucks in general, but his local Starbucks, and how the homeless people would come in and drink the cream, and the people in the line would always be on their cell phone when it was time for them to order. And for him, it was like his little kind of editorial page on Starbucks. Uh, some people had then started getting into much deeper stories. It had much more meaning to them. There was this story that somebody made about their sister's abusive relationship and how she endured it for many years and then finally left it. And so it was very heartfelt to read this and the, you know, the fact that she was able to just kind of have a format where she could put it up on a web page and you know, thousands of people could read it was very meaningful to her. Plus, you know, just kind of major significant events like 9-11. You know, people were putting up a lot of stories about kind of how they felt, what they were doing, you know, etc. So kind of thinking about storytelling, I think looking at the computer and what we're doing with interactive entertainment, it's always been much more interesting to me over the last few years to think more in the terms of not so much telling a story so much as listening to a story. Because I think if we can teach the computer to listen to the player stories, those are the ones they really care about and those are going to be much more powerful. So kind of one possible approach to this is that we can have the computer start coming to some understanding, first of all, the theme of what the player is trying to do. I mean, there are very simple things we can do in a game and get some sense. Are they doing romance, comedy, horror? Uh, have some mapping where the computer is slowly learning the story that's in the player's head. Almost, you know, in a system like natural language parsing, you're actually taking a real sentence and you're decomposing it into meaningful, you know, the formal grammar of English. I think there's probably something very similar where we can look at story at different levels, probably a fractal approach, looking at patterns of what the player is doing and start to basically have the computer understand, oh, I see, this is a boy meets girl story or this is a you know, teen slasher thing. And now if we could do that, another thing we can do is we can very easily look at the goal states the players are pursuing in a game. You know, basically, if we know what the goal states are, we can even you know, present dramatic obstacles to achieving those goal states, but not overcomable. I mean, not, you know... Not things they cannot overcome, but things they can get around, but still amplifies the drama, kind of like I was giving with the Star Wars example, that you know, the whole thing comes down to this very epic struggle, but the computer's kind of figured out what the epic struggle is the player's trying to achieve. Now, if we could do that, you know, if we could actually parse what the player's intended story is, we could change the presentation of the story. We could change the lighting. We could change the music. Uh, we could even start changing the events. You know? So if they detect that we're doing a horror story in the computer, maybe the lights get low, lightning happens outside, spooky music starts, and then I open the door and there's a zombie or whatever. So rather than having random events in the simulator, the computer can actually start driving events to clarify the story. And then, of course, once you've done this, you've basically created a movie, this play experience, that you can then kind of capture and replay to somebody else. I suspect this is probably more likely going to happen using a lot of parallel learning, where we observe millions of players and start pulling out the patterns from that, you know, rather than us sitting down and kind of just deducing what these you know, patterns of story are. Now, in the vision I'm describing right now really is close to something like The Truman Show, where you have the player in the role of Truman kind of running around there with a certain amount of free will, and the computer is more like the director in The Truman Show, where he has certain abilities to influence and present but he still cannot violate Truman's free will. You know, he basically controls the envelope around Truman. Uh, in fact, I found that Truman Show and Groundhog Day are probably the two most relevant uh, pieces of linear entertainment that really pertain to games. You know, the Truman Show really because of the fact 
that it's dealing with somebody who basically is in a game. You know, he's in this kind of bounded envelope. And I wish games were more like The Truman Show in the way they worked. And then The Truman Show really is about this guy trying to bust out of the game. First of all, realizing he was in a game. And then eventually, can he bust out of it? And Groundhog Day, of course, for basically the experience of exploring the same kind of starting position over and over and mapping out the entire possibility space around you. Now, looking at trends into the future, uh, there's this concept from games called the Magic Circle, which is that when people play a game together, they're sitting down and they're all agreeing to kind of uh, respect the rules and the conventions of the game. And people might be outside the magic circle observing, and they're not expected to, you know, to respect those rules. Like one of the rules might be we don't cheat, or we don't talk during bridge with our partner, or whatever it is. But basically by entering the magic circle, you're agreeing to be uh, bound by those conventions. I think story has a lot of the same thing. You know, really, when you think about story, people sit around together, and it becomes kind of a shared experience. And in fact, I think about story circles that probably started out around campfires you know, tens of thousands of years ago. And over time, they've evolved to kind of larger, more structured environments. And at the same time, our idea of story has evolved you know, to have much more structure, this react structure, conventions with the protagonist and antagonist. Uh, you know, eventually, we got these very large, formal things with a lot of technology behind them, telling very epic stories in movie theaters. But then it actually started kind of shrinking back again. We started getting the television and people watching you know, shorter shows at home in the living room, you know, all the way down to like video iPods. And so I think we're getting a lot of opportunities now you know, in almost fractal storytelling where we have stories that are not just two-hour movies or one-hour TV shows or half-hour TV shows, but three-minute things that you're pulling down off of YouTube, et cetera. So in some sense, the story circles have been diversifying, you know, not just uh, in time and the length of the format, but also in space. You know, I don't have to go to a movie theater or a living room to watch a story now. I could be sitting on the bus watching my video iPod. You know, games are basically doing the same thing. They're kind of diversifying in time and space across all these different platforms, you know, where I can play a really epic 40-hour game experience or I can play a very simple little two-minute game experience on my cell phone. So this is something that stories and games really share in terms of the way they're trending into the future. Now, if you kind of look at you know, how much time that the average person spends consuming linear entertainment, I think it's fairly flat across age ranges. You, know, you see you know, 10-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 6-year-olds all watching movies, watching television, in not too dissimilar proportions. Whereas interactive entertainment still is kind of riding this generational wave right now. If you look at the, you know, the people that are really spending a lot of time playing games and stuff, it's down here, and it's kind of moving that way. And so we're in this kind of cultural overtake process where there's an uncomfortable mixture of people that have spent a lot more time with linear entertainment than interactive, but yet this whole generation coming up where interactive entertainment is at least compelling to them. Uh, in some sense, what that's doing is driving the diversity of interactive entertainment. So one of the things is that rather than games just being about story or you know, sports, which is kind of what they've been, they're actually evolving more toward the hobbies and things like that. So games are being thought of not so much as a game, sit down and hear the rules, but also as things that can be a tool of self-expression, much like a hobby. A hobbyist might build a really elaborate train set to show off to his friends. Now, I think a lot of people also, because of the tools that are getting available on the computer, are getting, you know, they have design aspirations, and we're starting to kind of fulfill those aspirations more and more with computers. You know, the original desktops that people could modify were very seductive, the fact that somebody could actually kind of modify their desktop and got them very used to very early on the fact that they, this was a malleable technology for them. We found that players love making content in games, and we've actually been really riding that way of a lot over the last few years. Not only do they like making the content with the right tools, but they love sharing and collecting it, putting up websites, and some people just love organizing the content, not even so much making it. And the power of that collective effort is turning out to be amazing, and you're seeing this on a lot of the social networking sites. 
uh, you know, one of the things we've kind of dealt with for a long time here is the fact that uh, there's a quality versus quantity issue here. And so, yes, we get a lot of content from the players, but frankly, most of it's kind of crappy. Uh, some of it's pretty good. Uh, a little bit of it's great, you know, a very, very small amount. This is what we call a parallel distribution. Um, but as we give them better and better tools, I think we're going to get in the process of being able to pull up the t into this curve here and basically increase the quality of what they're doing, which means that not only is it a value to them, but it's a value to other people as well. So basically, we have players building models as they play games. They're reverse engineering the system in their head and building models. But basically, we also have the ability now to start building models of the players. The computer can actually look at what the player's doing, try to understand what does this player like doing, what are they good at, et cetera, and start building a model. We can look at things like how they move across the gameplay landscape. This is data that we captured from The Sims, over 1,000 players, the thing, you know, directions they went in the possibility space. We can look at things like what they buy when we present them with shopping alternatives in the game. We can look at things like social networks that they form with other players, or even kind of social interaction frequencies, the type of social interactions they do with other people. Are they mean? Are they nice? Are they friendly? And from that, we can build fairly elaborate computer models predicting their behavior. So the game I'm working on now, Spore, basically is kind of taking that idea, you know, or a collection of these ideas. What if we could give a player a very simple set of levers where they could build these kind of like tinker toy things, but the computer then takes that and amplifies it. You know, it actually builds out the incredible high-res mesh, textures, animations, and behavior, and then presents them with a very kind of high-res output. Uh, relative to what they put in. So with a few simple levers, they get a tremendous amount of creative amplification on their efforts. And now, if we were able to do that, that asset that they've made not only has value to them, but to other players as well. Now, at the same time, what if we could take those assets and then collect them all up on a server as this large collection of things that the players are making as they play and categorize those, but take the player model. You know, what is this player like? What have we seen about the way they play the game? And predict what kind of stuff that other players have made would they like in their world and bring it back into their world. And that's kind of what uh, Spore is about. It's about how do we close this loop of giving the players empowered tools and then giving them the ability to redistribute them. So in fact, I really want to kind of take the player out of the role of Luke Skywalker, the protagonist, and put them more into the role of George Lucas and make them the creator of these entire worlds. Can we basically extract the entire world from their imagination? Uh, Spore was kind of inspired by the Powers of Ten and uh, a few other things, the SETI project, Drake's Equation. I noticed that all the terms in Drake's Equation really kind of mapped to the Powers of Ten pretty cleanly. So we really decided to make a game that was kind of about the whole universe, from the very small to the very large. And I'm going to show you a quick demo here. Let's put this up. So a lot of the work on Spore really has been about the player tools. And in The Sims, the player tools were external to the game. What happened is that you would play The Sims, I mean, you could create a Sim to create a house and stuff inside the game, but to create objects and textures and wallpapers and all this other stuff, you kind of had to go outside the game, create it in a tool, download it off a website, put it in the right folder. There was a lot of friction, basically, for players to create stuff. Uh, so what we wanted to do was basically take all the tools and fold them back into the gameplay. So the process of playing the game was the process of making assets for the game. That was really kind of part of the challenge and fun of the gameplay. And then we would actually collect these assets and redistribute them automatically. Rather than the players having to go out to all these websites, download stuff into the right folders, we wanted the game to kind of predict you know, stuff that would make their world more interesting. Now, the result of doing that is we're able to build basically kind of an infinite-sized world for the players to kind of play around in. Uh, just to give you kind of a brief sense of it, we could bring up the sound a little bit on this. You start the game at a very, very small level, you know, basically in a drop of water as a single cell creature. 
and the gameplay actually gets kind of more elaborate as you go along. So this is our little creature here. It is like, like he swims around. And basically, he's just eating little food pellets right now. And right now, there's uh, very little challenge to the game. I'm basically looking for food pellets to eat. But as I eat the food pellets, my little creature is growing over time. And what'll happen in the cell game is that we're actually going to transition through many orders of magnitude as we grow up. And here, a couple more, you'll actually start seeing the camera pull back. And so the world itself actually kind of becomes more and more expansive. And the creatures that were in the background layer now become in the foreground layer. So we kind of get a premonition of things, you know, that are out of depth of field, that are out of focus. That as we grow, they start kind of interacting with us. And this guy's about to eat me. So I'm going to skip out of the cell game. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, but at any rate, over time, you basically are playing this single cell creature. And then as you get larger and larger, you eventually kind of move out of the water and on the land. And you become a more fully formed, macroscopic, three-dimensional creature. So the game starts with like the very simplest kind of two-dimensional Pac-Man-like dynamic. And then over time, it kind of then uh, evolves, really. You're actually playing every generation of the species through evolution, up to a 3D kind of a third-person eater uh, kind of environment here. So here's my little creature. This was my cell, basically, after going, I'm skipping way ahead here, but going through about uh, five or six orders of magnitude. We're now up on land is this little kind of slimy slug thing. Now this world, I can uh, do things like go stealthy. I have certain properties on my creature here. And if I can look around, I might find something I could eat. Oh, these are my guys. I don't eat them. Now in the game, basically, at this point, we we're playing a very simple kind of game of evolution. And uh, we have to eat, survive, reproduce. Now, those guys are probably too big for me. There's some small things over here. Now, if I go stealthy, I might be able to sneak up on this little baby. I think it's a baby of these large things. There we go. Okay, he's running away. He's going back to his parents. Oh, okay. All right, I'm getting out of there. Yeah, oh, I wasn't supposed to die. Oh, man. Okay. Well, I'm going to cheat now. Now, really what I would have done is uh, find one of my species and reproduce with it after eating a certain amount of points. But I'm going to cheat here and go ahead and reproduce... And when you reproduce it, basically you go into the egg, and this is kind of the next level editor of the game. And so we basically have this very simple little form here, but now we have a three-dimensional creature that I can kind of grab by its little thing here. It's very much kind of a what you see is what you get editor. We wanted it to feel very tactile, very toy-like. I can expand the spine here, manipulate it how I want. I can use the mouse wheel to kind of inflate and deflate it. And so we wanted this part to feel very much like clay. We had to come up with metaphors for each part of the game. And then we have parts. So this is a mouth. I'm going to pull off this mouth here. And these are limbs. And now we wanted the players to be able to kind of create anything they could imagine. And so we didn't want to have a lot of preconditions kind of on what the creature had to be because what we're really expecting is these kind of amazing, you know, weird creatures the players want to build. So I'm going to take this guy. Instead of putting hands on there, I'm going to put, uh, let's see, I'm going to put some mouths on his arms. Yeah. And we'll give him maybe one eye. Maybe a few legs. Now, 
what's happening here is we built a very simple toy system that tries to interpret a lot of the player's intent. Uh, we're trying to build basically something that's like Maya for 10-year-olds. Uh, roughly that amount of power, but yet far less kind of controls. And that involves the program kind of understanding a lot more about 3D objects and editing. A lot of these parts have like little morph handles that I can sit there and kind of stretch them across all these kind of different state spaces. And so each part actually represents, you know, several hundred kind of potential states. Let me pull up some old eyes here. And let's give him another set of arms. Down there maybe. So you kind of get a sense here that I'm basically manipulating a little tinker toy system. You know, it has aspects of like Mr. Potato Head, aspects of clay, aspects of Legos. And let's give him some hands. I give him a weapon on his tail. So basically, uh, here in about a couple minutes, I've created this 3D mesh. And the next step is to go to the painting. So when I go to this, uh, the program analyzes the topology of my creature. It looks at like where the spine is, where the legs, all the parts. And it knows, so basically I can retexture the creature with one click. It's actually running procedures on this creature. And it understands where to put the shadows and stuff. This is normally something it would take a texture artist several days to do, that we've kind of reduced to a few hundred milliseconds. And so within about three minutes, I've created something that, you know, is roughly kind of the quality that, you know, a Pixar artist used to spend several weeks creating. And now we have to bring this thing to life. You know, the computer has no idea kind of what we built, but it has to analyze it. Now, before we can animate it, the computer will analyze things like where the legs are, the hands and all that. And every creature that you make in this thing will move very uniquely. And so here I can see how it move around, see how it might dance. And no two creatures are going to move the same in this game. I can also have it pose for a little screenshot. So I take little snapshots of it here. And so keep a little photo album that I can then email to a friend. Uh, as well as kind of, you know, how it would bite, how it would eat, stuff like that. So basically, the animation side of this, we're closing the loop where, you know, the computer is dealing with building the mesh, building the texture, building the animation, kind of all on the fly procedurally. So the player, you know, just in a few clicks, has created kind of this interesting thing. And then once you've created it, you bring it back into the game. And now, depending on what I've built, it's going to behave very differently in the game, have very different properties that I have to kind of interact with the world. And so I'll probably fight very differently. Ooh, this is a bad place to hatch. Ah, run away. <laughs> so this is the baby version of what I've just done. We actually run a, kind of a neonatal algorithm on it, so it has very big eyes and hands until it grows up here. Uh, over time, we'll actually grow up and become an adult of our species. But uh, in some sense, we want the computer to be totally focused on what the player's made. So not only is the player kind of making something in the game, but we want the player's creation to kind of be front and center. Here we're kind of, okay, this is what our full-grown creature looks like. Now, if we're looking for another one to mate with, we can do a call and find other members of our species. Now, I'm going to skip way ahead here. And over time, what happens is you actually develop intelligence for these creatures, and you start managing whole tribes of them, and then civilizations. And I'm going to kind of skip way ahead in the game to give you a sense of kind of what the whole world looks like. So we're going to skip ahead to what we call the space game. Eventually, they develop high enough technology to where they can build spacecraft and actually go out and then see the entire view of the planet that you've evolved on up to this point. In some sense, you know, I want this game to be something that brings up a lot of interesting kind of issues for the player, you know, out of real science, real world, all the way back from, you know, the entire history of life up to the future of life. Where might life go? Because I think if you look at the kind of non-biological universe, stars, planets, galaxies, and whatnot, uh, so they are 
interesting, but not nearly as interesting as life. When you look at kind of the effect life can potentially have on the universe, it's, you know, philosophically staggering. And I want the players to kind of trip across that. I went to school in a Montessori school as a kid, up to fifth grade. And after that, the rest of my education was basically downhill. And it wasn't until later that I started going back and kind of studying Maria Montessori and her philosophies and methods. And, you know, really the basis of a lot of her educational philosophy was the idea that she, we should be able to build toys that players or kids play with. And they come to understand, they explore and discover the principles of the world around them by themselves. Rather than a teacher teaching them the Pythagorean theorem, you can actually discover by just playing with blocks and develop an intuitive understanding of it. And so the games I make, I kind of think of in those terms as very elaborate Montessori toys. And I think of how can I build a game where a player, in playing with it, is going to come across fairly interesting kind of issues in philosophy and science, things like the Copernican principle or the Fermi paradox or the Anthropic principle. And that's kind of what this really is best understood as, you know, as a philosophy tool that in playing with it, you kind of walk away thinking about the meaning of life, the future course that life might take, or how we even got here. But back to the game here. So we're kind of much later in the game here. This is the entire planet that we've been playing on up to this point. This is our home planet. And so we actually evolved in this ocean, crawled out, and at some point started building you know, very primitive societies, tribes, and then whole cities. And so we have editors at every level. So I can, you know, this is my little kind of UFO spacecraft. If I want to, I can kind of go in and redesign my own here. I can open my UFO editor. Now, it's also going to be po pollinated with other things that other players have made. So I might decide, oh, I like this thing that somebody's made, and just switch to that. And we want players to do, you know, very accurate representations of, you know, kind of their favorite things. You know, what, one of my real aspirations for this is that eventually I want to see interstellar wars between, like, the Care Bears and the Klingons, you know. And we're already starting to see that happen, you know, kind of in the game. So for everything you see in the game, the vehicles, buildings, etc., we have editors. Uh, there's also a very simple toy planet here. So one of the ideas here is that what happens if you get a kid a toy planet that they can kind of mess around with? And so we have very simple uh, weather systems, geology, climate, etc. One of the things I can kind of do here is I can kind of play around with terraforming it even. So in some sense, this whole planet now has become a lump of clay to me. I can open my, uh, my terraforming tools here and carve rivers into it. Uh, basically sculpted however I want, you know, so entire planets, you know, be kind of editable objects at this point in time. Um, we can also do kind of more subtle things. I can come in here and start messing around with the climate a little bit. I can use the cloud ray, and this is actually going to start increasing the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And so we can kind of basically do the uh, sequel to New Inconvenient Truth here really rapidly. Now if I go to this little reading here, this will actually show me, this is also a very simple food web that simulated on the planet. So I'm kind of screwing up the planet right now. We can see the oceans rising. This is very, very fast forward. Cities being destroyed, etc. Because I just pumped a whole bunch of greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. Uh, I could also heat it up a little bit more with this. At some point, you know, I can combat the rising ocean levels by heating the planet enough to melt the ocean. And so at this point, we're actually melting the oceans. But of course, the planet's turning into this hell house desert here. And if I keep doing this for a while. You know, we're seeing the species dying off too. So we have a very simple little food web simulated here that uh, my whole planet is about to go extinct. I still have a few species hanging on here, but not for long. Yeah, okay, the whole planet's melting now. So in some sense, the entire planet here is kind of a toy that you can kind of play with and get these simple reactions, but get some very rough sense. And, you know, I think one of the really interesting things about toys like this is that you can give somebody a sense of very long-term dynamics over very short term. Because I think one of the 
biggest problems that we have as humans in dealing with the major issues that we're dealing with is the fact that we are so hard, so bad at long-term thinking. It's so hard for us to think 100 years out or 1,000 years out. If we can somehow take these long-term dynamics, things like climate change, and bring them into a five or 10-minute experience and play with it as a toy, I think we can kind of recalibrate our instincts around this, use this almost as a tool to calibrate our imagination to think you know, more long-term. So I basically trashed my home planet here. Uh, I'm going to pull back. Now, as I pull back from my home planet, we start saying this is my uh, solar system. So this is my home star. We have a few other planets here. We might fly to another planet in our home system over here. Now, this planet, I can tell, has some simple life on it. Not intelligence, but just some kind of very primitive life. Now, one of the things I want players to do with, as we're playing through evolution, we're trying to present it as kind of a toy version of evolution, a very simple version, but it still captures most of the dynamics of evolution. Things about the food web, you know, the types of species, carnivores, omnivores, herbivores. Uh, as we move into the future, I want the game to be more and more focused on the kind of fictional landmarks that we have. You know, as we think about science fiction, it actually covers a lot of interesting territory and a lot of interesting philosophical questions. So a lot of the gameplay kind of up at these levels is based upon kind of my favorite science fiction movies. So here's a species on the planet. It's just some kind of wild creature. Um, one of the things I can kind of do at this level is I can uh, take out my monolith tool and drop it here. Yeah, it should attract them. Oh, they ran into the ocean. They were aquatic. Well, I'm going to try that again. I have to cheat because I only get one monolith in this game. The monolith is something that you come across much later in the game. So give me another one. And so basically I'm looking at kind of my favorite science fiction movies and figuring out what the landmarks, the kind of the narrative landmarks in there are. Oh, give me one. Oh, actually, they did find the monolith. Okay. Well, what they do is they come worship around the monolith, and then it basically instantly upgrades their brain level. And so now they've actually built a tribal society here, so this is their hut. Um, and at some point, I can come down, I can actually leave my UFO, and get them to uh, try to worship me as a god. Um, I have to be very careful not to upset them. But once I let them get used to me, it's just kind of like taming a wild horse. So... Once again, this is the creature that I made when I was playing through the game. These are creatures that some other players made. They might have certain properties. And it doesn't look like he wants to worship me right now. It's a pretty small tribe here. Yeah. Oh, there we go. There's some little tricks I can do. I can actually scan them. Yeah. And now we've done some little bit of miracle magic here. I can also scan this guy with my scanning tool. And what basically happens is he gets entered into my encyclopedia. We have this idea of a sporpedia, which is this encyclopedia of everything you've come across in the game up to this point. And in some sense, this is your way to visualize the food web on a planet. So as you click on these things, these are not scanned. This is the guy I just scanned. I can actually get a running database of every creature, every vehicle, every building, every city, every planet, every star that I visited in the game. This is built up automatically. And we want to actually build printable you know, training guard games, you can kind of play with this. So you can kind of, kind of actually bring this outside the game. So in addition to things like 2001, we also taking all these other landmarks, things like War of the Worlds, Day the Earth Stood Still, Star Trek, X-Files. You know, each one of these becomes kind of an aspect of the metagame up at this level. Now, as we advance our technology, at some point we can actually pull away from our home star out into the uh, interstellar space around our star. So this is a region of interstellar space around our home star. Several hundred other stars here. Uh, we not only have stars, but we have a lot of like Hubble objects that you might see. 
In fact, uh, you know, the Hubble images you were seeing earlier, one of the things about those that always interested me was that when you look at those images, you have no idea of the scale or frequency of these things. You have no idea whether you're looking at a planetary nebula or a galaxy, and there's a tremendous difference in size between the two. Uh, this is like a protoplanetary disk. So this is a region where new planets are forming around a star, and over time this will coalesce into form planetary systems. But I wanted to have, you know, basically a very simple environment where the player can kind of go around almost as a tourist, kind of visiting this little zoo of cool objects and get some sense of, you know, how these things behave and where they're distributed, how large they are relative to each other, and to give people a context for things that they're seeing, for instance, like in the Hubble. So here we're going to a planetary nebula, which is really just an exploded star. But there are these lovely things. These are kind of like the birds of the universe. You know, each one is different. There's these magnificently colored things that are basically remnants of supernovas. Um, but of course, we can also go to stars. Uh, this is, looks like a binary system over here. And every star system will have planets you can interact with. Uh, and many of these will be inhabited by other players' um, species. And many of them will be spacefaring, will have things like missions and all that. But basically, you know, over time, you're able to explore larger and larger areas. If we pull back from this, we're seeing several thousand stars. They're, you know, many are procedurally generated, many are player kind of built. But really, this is a very small fraction of the entire galaxy that we're dealing with here. We're actually dealing with several million worlds that are all unique because they're built by the players kind of as they play the game in parallel. So basically, that is Spore. I want to show you just a little more PowerPoint, and we'll finish up here. Not too late. Okay, so back to PowerPoint. So you can take any form of human technology and kind of understand it as an extension of the human body. You know, so in some sense, you know, cars are an extension of our legs. You know, things like telescopes, television, extend our eyesight. Uh, telephones extend our voice. Uh, a house, really, and clothing extends our skin around our body. Now, computers really do a lot of these things, but really I think the most important thing that computers do for us and are going to be doing in the future is they extend our imagination. And that's actually a very powerful thing when you think about it. It's like a, having uh, this kind of enhancement, an amplifier for our imaginations. And, you know, we're already using computers in things like entertainment, education, communication, and they're very rapidly, especially through computer games, becoming a tool of self-expression and with websites and social spaces, things like that. So how is this really going to kind of impact the world going forward? And this is kind of, in my mind, one of these questions I kind of think about late at night as I'm falling asleep type of thing. Uh, you know, every now and then the entire world goes through like a major paradigm shift where all the rules just change from underneath us and we have to kind of recalibrate, rebuild basically our model of the world. Uh, sometimes these things are kind of driven by social changes that occur. You know, these used to happen about once every lifetime, maybe twice a lifetime. Uh, but with technology, you know, a lot of these are driven by technology, we're starting to see it happen more and more often. Uh, some of them are actually grassroots rather than top-down. Some of them take us totally by surprise. We don't see them coming at all until they happen. But basically, the rate at which these major paradigm shifts are hitting us are happening more and more frequently over time. And we have a lot more kind of heading our way. We have a lot of obvious political kind of issues that we're confronting, uh, more social issues on the way, the obvious environmental issues that are starting to get much more kind of awareness. And we have a lot of people kind of issuing warnings, some very specific, some a little more abstract, you know, as kind of landmarks within that space, as I mentioned earlier, that we can choose to avoid or kind of move towards. But basically, when we look at, you know, games specifically and entertainment in general kind of heading into that future, you know, I think games have this perception in popular culture right now of being these simple, meaningless, mindless toys, you know, that we waste our time with. But really, I think they can be much, much more than that, you know. We're already seeing games, you know, have the ability to have deep changes in our behavior and the way we see the world. They're able to allow us to develop systemic thinking about these very complex systems that we confront. 
uh, and in some sense allow us to build much more elaborate, more accurate models of the world around us. And because of that, we're potentially able to navigate the future with just a little bit more intelligence than we were able to before. And so hopefully these things, you know, will allow us to change the world, you know, by changing the people and their awareness and their models just a little bit for the better over the next, you know, rest of our lives, basically. And that's the end. Thank you.